Well, I have some good news for you this morning, and it's this, that Jesus will not forget you the third week of February. And I get that from something Ralph Davis said. He said, Yahweh is Lord of the last day, but also of every day. He will bring the consummation of his kingdom at last, but he will not forget you in the third week of September. Jesus is sovereign over everything that happens in this world and over everything that happens in your life. He will bring his kingdom to pass. He will deal with all of his enemies. So ain't nobody getting away with nothing. And he will make everything new one day. He will make everything sad come untrue. He will wipe away every tear. And he will take care of you this week. He won't forget you this week. He is the Lord of the last day, but also of every day. He's even the Lord of the third week of February. So Christian, take heart, he will not forget you. And he did not forget Abram and company. He did not forget his promise to Abram. And he did not forget Lot when Lot was captured and carted off by some ancient Near Eastern thugs. Even then, Yahweh was king and Lord. Even when things went south, even when some ancient Near Eastern thugs flexed their muscles, Yahweh was in absolute control, just like he is in your life right now. Okay, we're in Genesis 14, so turn there in your Bibles. What we'll see today is what happens when you mess with God's people. You mess with the bull, you get the horns. And some kings with some very weird and hard-to-pronounce names will find that out about Abram's God, Yahweh, in Genesis chapter 14. So let's look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Cadalaomor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cadalaomor and the kings who were with him came and de- defeated the Rephaim in the Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathayim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So again, I must ask you, doesn't that just warm your heart? I know it's not exactly goosebump-inducing material. I know you might not slap one of these verses on a bumper sticker and then slap it on your car, but you just might after today's sermon... Most preachers tackle all of Genesis chapter 14 in one sermon, probably because it's easier to cruise through the first 16 verses really fast so that you can get to that mysterious figure named Melchizedek that we'll look at next week. So I purposely 
stopped at verse 16 because I wanted to challenge myself to preach a harder passage and to show you how much gold there is in weird or odd Old Testament passages, especially one that's just about a bunch of kings with egos fighting one another. How do you preach a sermon based on a passage where a bunch of ego-driven kings with weird names want to throw down and scrap with one another? And how do you preach a sermon based on a passage where a bunch of ego-driven kings with weird names that want to throw down and scrap with one another, and the passage doesn't even mention God's name? I mean, Yahweh is not even mentioned in these verses, so how do you preach a sermon from this text? Well, you just have to know where to look. You have to read between the lines. Because even though God's name is not mentioned in these 16 verses, you still get the gist that he is the one who is in control. The Hebrew word melech, king, is mentioned 28 times in this chapter. There are five kings of Canaan, four kings of Mesopotamia, and yet it is the king of kings who is in control. It is the king of kings who is upholding, directing, disposing, and governing all creatures, actions, and things, and kings to quote the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5 on Providence that we looked at last week. That's the banner that's waving over Genesis chapter 14. Yahweh is king, and nothing can stop his kingdom from coming. Not even four thug kings from Mesopotamia who were bullying everyone on the playground. And so here's what's going on. You've got these four thug kings from Mesopotamia, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Kedaleomor, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goyim. And they went to war with five other kings, Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, or Zoar. So I expect you have all their names memorized right now, right? And that you can pronounce them even better than I can. Well, they're fighting. Why? Because the five kings rebelled. Most likely, they got tired of having their lunch money taken by these bullies. Now, they probably had to pay like their monthly dues to these kings. And after 12 years, these five kings said, that's it. No more. So the four king Mesopotamian posse goes on this rampage where they beat up all these other kings and countries that you can read about in verses 5 through 7. And then... They set their sights on the five-king alliance that dared rebel against them. Are you confused? Well, let me simplify it a little bit. Four tough guys bully these five smaller kids, but then one day the five kids wake up and they rebel. Like, why are we paying these people money? And so when the four bullies are out bullying people, they remember, oh, there's these five smaller kids who owe us money and we're going to go make them pay. Got it yet? Well, let me show you a map here. Maybe this will help. So King Cador Leomor and company travel all the way down south. That's that big red arrow. And, then they, and along the way, they're beating people up, taking their lunch money. Then they make their way up north. That's the other red arrow. And then they remember these four kings owe them money. So the five kings fight with these four kings in the Valley of Sedim. That's the purple oval there. And then after the battle, which the, five, the four kings win... They take Lot, Abram's nephew, hostage. 
And then later, Abram will sneak up on them near Dan, that's the yellow box, and beat them up and rescue his nephew Lot. And so that's the paragraph of hard-to-pronounce names right there in map form for you. You're welcome. All right, so let's get to the battle. The five kings are tired of being bullied, so they meet the four thug kings on the playground after school. Let's read about it. Look at verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. It's a Hebrew word. It can also mean to hide. I think that's what happened. They hid out in these pits. Some fell into them or hid in them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So the fight doesn't go as planned uh, for the five bullied kings. They get their tails beat and then they take off running away. Some fall or hide in the tar pits. As they flee, others run to the hills. So much for standing up to your bullies, right? Well, at least in this case, it didn't work. The bullies take all the cattle, the sheep, the servants when they leave, and they happen to take Lot, Abram's nephew, with them. This is all typical ancient Near Eastern bully stuff. You bully, scare, fight, plunder, steal, leave. The only difference is that these four bully kings took one of Abram's relatives, his nephew Lot. They obviously hadn't heard of Yahweh yet. Abram and Lot's God. But they will soon find out who Yahweh is. And they will find out because Abram found out what they did. And Abram found out what they did because of the providence of his God, Yahweh. Let me show you. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Anur. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So I don't know if you caught it, but verse 13 has the providence of God written all over it because an unnamed man escaped and went to tell Abram about what happened to Lot. You're supposed to read verse 13 and be reminded of the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. This isn't chance that this man escaped. This isn't luck that this man escaped. This is sovereignty, sovereignty and providence showing up sweaty and out of breath from running all night to tell Abram about his nephew. This is just how God's providence works. I love how Ralph Davis describes providence. He says, providence is God's way of providing for the needs of his people. That's not all of it, but some of it. 
When I use providence here, I mean that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people. And his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. That's what's oozing out of chapter, uh, verse 13. Yahweh is providing for and taking care of Lot by causing a guy to escape from the four thug kings and to safely make his way to Abram's ranch. So even though his name is not mentioned in these verses, it's God, it's Yahweh who is in control, not the four thug kings. Remember, the Hebrew word melech, king, is used 28 times in this chapter. It's a bunch of Kedalaamor, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, doing what they want, acting like they own the place, but it's Yahweh who is in control. Genesis 14, 13 is in your Bible to remind you of that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. That's what you're supposed to get when you read verse 13. And then you're supposed to think, what might God do in my situation? How might God fix the mess I created? How might God redeem this circumstance that I'm facing? How will God turn this mess for my good? That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to read verse 13 about a man who escaped and see the providence of God and then think, what's God going to do in my life? What's God going to do in this hopeless situation? How is he going to intervene? How is he going to bring good into my life? You see, Genesis 14, 13 is in the Bible to, to remind you and me that God can do whatever he wants. That he can cause a man to escape so that another man, Lot, doesn't get killed by four thug kings. Genesis 14, 13 is in the Bible to give you hope. To remind you that it's never over and it's never too late to remind you that God is absolutely aware of everything happening in your life and you can trust him. This is a kind of providence that remembers. This is the kind of providence that doesn't forget his people or the mess that his people find themselves in. I mean, who knew? 16 verses that never mention God's name can, could, can put wind in your sails and help you out on a Friday morning when you don't feel like carrying on in this life. Genesis 14, 13 is in the Bible to remind you that Jesus will not forget you the third week of February. Whatever you go through this week, Jesus will not forget you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He didn't forget Lot, and neither did his uncle Abram. Abram rallied 318 men, and off they went to rescue his nephew, and they were successful. They saved Lot and got back all his cows too. Thank you, Uncle Abe. Abraham showed 
faith when he did this. Obviously, he trusted Yahweh. You know why? Because Abram brought a stick to a gunfight. Just 318 men. And yet Abram took off to rescue Lot. And what stood in Abram's way? Oh, just a four-thug king alliance that had just swept through Canaan and ravaged the six tribes that are mentioned in verses 5 through 7. I mean, these guys were on a roll. And so Abram needs to rescue his nephew because as he understands it, the promise of having many descendants and getting land, as Abram understands it, that promise will probably come through his nephew Lot. He has no kids. This is his only family member. So Abram takes off in faith to rescue Lot, trusting that what Yahweh promised him would come true. It's like God's promise gave Abram a backbone. Think about that. Where in your life do you need one of God's promises to give you a backbone? It's like Yahweh's promise to Abraham that we've seen over the last few sermons that he would have land and have descendants. It's like it gave Abram a backbone to take on this four-thug-king alliance. And so he heads off to rescue Lot, not in fear, but in faith, not knowing what would happen, but knowing that he would have as many descendants as the dust of the earth because Yahweh promised him that, and Yahweh's promise gave him courage. But notice, too, that Abram's faith isn't passive And notice, too, that Abram isn't a pacifist. He grabs his guns or his stick, and off he goes to get Lot. And again, we are to see that it's Yahweh who is in control of everything in this chapter because Abram was an old man, probably 75 years old here. Do you want a 75-year-old leading you into battle? Maybe. Depends on the guy. Abram's 75 years old And he only takes 318 men, and they defeat four kings and their armies. You can file that under P for providence. And now I want to point something else out here. There's a word that I don't know if any of you caught. It's in verse 11. Let me read it. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Do you see it there? It's the third word, enemy. How are these four thug kings described? They are the enemy. They are the enemy of the people of God. They have kidnapped Lot, one of God's people. Therefore, they're the enemy. This is why Abram must deal with them. And so understand this. God has enemies and he deals with them. We see this in Genesis 14. God has enemies. That might bother you. If all you think is that God is just a God of love, that's all he is. Everybody gets in in the end. It's just warm fuzzies and cotton candy and Jesus with soft skin and nice feathered hair and we all just sit around and sing kumbaya. Everybody makes it. Well, let me tell you, everybody will make it to the judgment seat of Christ for sure. Do all paths lead to God? Absolutely. Every path leads straight to the judgment seat of Christ. There's no getting around that. God has enemies, and that might bother you. But as one of my favorite authors, Flannery O'Connor, said, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. 
As Hebrews 12 says, we just read, Jesus is going to shake the heavens and earth one day like a snow globe. And when he returns in his final advent, advent, he will tear down every rival kingdom. Genesis 14 reminds us that God is very much in control and very much involved in the politics and the affairs of the world. So call me crazy, but what appears on the surface to be a sort of boring passage here in Genesis chapter 14, it just might be what we need right now. You might want to highlight all 16 verses. I'm talking three paragraphs. Or at least highlight the word enemy in verse 11. Oh, these three paragraphs may not give you the warm fuzzies upon first reading, unless you're like a war history buff. But these verses might be what the church needs to hear at this point in her history. Isn't that something we always need to hear? Don't we always need our noses rubbed into the good news of God's sovereign, powerful hand over all nations, kings, governments, and rulers? And years of election? Don't we always need our noses rubbed into the truth that Jesus is going to deal with his enemies one day? Don't we all need our noses rubbed into the hope that ain't nobody getting away with nothing? Don't we always need our noses rubbed into the fact that God always takes care of his people? Whether in the past, like Abram and Company, or in the present, like Grace Baptist Church of Santa Maria, California, or in the future when Jesus returns to crack some heads, don't we always need to be reminded of this? I'm reminded that Martin Luther sang a little ditty, and it went something like this. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom, not Cato Leomar's, Yahweh's kingdom is forever. And that might be enough to keep you going one more day. It might be enough to help you get out of bed tomorrow morning. His kingdom is forever. And that might be all your heart needs later this week. Because this is your God, Christian. He is sovereign. He is almighty. He raises up some politicians and takes others down. Nations come and go. And that might include America. Nations come and go. Jesus demolishes kingdoms and kings and nothing gets by him. To quote Ralph Davis again, Jesus has a coffin for every empire and emperor. The only true security is in the kingdom of the carpenter's son. Don't think for a second that anybody anywhere is getting away with anything. Because Genesis 14 is in the Bible to remind you that Jesus is coming back on that final day at his final advent. And he's going to crack some heads. You might want to rub your nose into Genesis 14 because Jesus is reminding you today that every kingdom of this world will perish, but the kingdom of God is forever. And we, the church, the people of God, we know how the story ends. The destruction of God's enemies. Lot's rescue from captivity tells us that. And so we cry out to our city, we cry out to our neighbors to flee the wrath to come. 
God is going to overthrow and destroy his enemies at his final advent. So make sure you personally flee to Jesus for salvation if you haven't. Will you do that now? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Run to Jesus and flee and escape the wrath to come. Eternity in hell. We want to take the gospel good news to our city. We didn't plan singing God of the City, by the way. It just happened. We want to take the real Jesus to our city. He's kind. He's merciful. He's gentle. He's caring. He's forgiving. He's gracious. He's offering amnesty to his enemies right now. He's offering amnesty. He's kind, merciful, gentle, loving, caring, forgiving, gracious, but he's also the judge. The judge that every human being will stand before and give account. And so we have a very unique kingdom opportunity and responsibility here on the central coast of California. We need to be active as a church and as individual disciples in taking the message of the cross to our city. Christ crucified for sinners because the Central Coast is the number two never-churched region in America. I want to share this statistic with you that I routinely share with you because I want to remind you of the spiritual needs of our city and the Central Coast. I want you to leave here each week and say, what a great Savior! And not necessarily, what a great sermon, or what a great service, or what a great song. I want us to leave here each week and say, what a great Savior, what a great Savior Jesus is. And then take that good news and share it with our family and our neighbors and coworkers and baristas and waiters and mechanics and doctors that we encounter. I want us to be so overwhelmed with Jesus that we share him with anyone that God brings into our own little sphere of influence. And so here's the statistic that I want to share with you so that you'll share the love of Jesus with others. According to the Barna Group, the Central Coast is ranked number two in the U.S. on the Never Church list, a list of cities where the highest number of people, there's the highest number of people, uh, of, of people who have never, ever been to church. So in all the cities of the U.S., the Central Coast is ranked number two on the these people have never been to church list. Here's the list. We come in, number two, Santa Barbara, all Santa Maria, San Luis Obispo. Highest number of people who've never been to church once in all of America. I don't know if you have the statistic that put up. Uh, Maybe there's another one. Anyway, we're number two. This is the next slide. We'll get to it in a minute. There are more never-churched people here on the Central Coast than there are in New York. 16% of the people that live on the Central Coast have never been to church once. That's sobering. That means that God has sovereignly placed you in your neighborhood, you in your workplace, so that you can share Jesus with all these people that have never been to church. But then we're also ranked, here's the other slide, number nine on the top post-Christian cities in America. So you got eight spots up northeast, you got one up in the northwest, and then there's us on the Central Coast. 54%, over half of our population is post-Christian. What does it mean that they're post-Christian? It means they've never been to church, they don't know the Bible, they don't know who Adam and Eve are, they think Jesus is a cuss word. 
They're lost. And Jesus put you here so that you could tell them the good news that God loves sinners. And even though 16% of the Central Coast have never been to church, and 54% of the people here don't even have a biblical worldview at all, don't even know who Adam and Eve are, invite them to church anyway. You never know what might happen. They might agree to come with you. Easter is coming up in six weeks. Pray. Ask God to move in their hearts and invite someone. Say, you want to come to church with me on Easter? And so as you leave today, say this, what a great Savior you are, Jesus. Now open some doors for me to tell people about you. This is what I want us to pray this week. Jesus, give me an opportunity to tell someone about you. Let's pray that this week. Pray it for one another. Think of people this week and say, will you let so-and-so give them an opportunity and give this person an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, give us opportunities to tell people about you this week. And when you go tell people about Jesus, remember that Jesus will not forget you the third week of February. He will be with you as you tell people about him this week. Now, I don't know about you, but... I wonder how we will see God work this week. I mean, how exciting, right? We're not having to like twist God's arm here, make him cry uncle. If we pray, will you give me opportunities to tell unbelievers about you? Do you think Jesus is going to be like, well, let me think about that. I think I can work it in maybe. I mean, how exciting. What might God do this week because we pray that? We might come back next week and have people saying, I prayed and I shared my faith with someone and they came to Christ. I mean, I wonder what what wonderful, strange, mysterious, and unguessable ways we will see the Spirit of God work in our lives this week. This is coming from a man whose life is falling apart, by the way, okay? Lest you think I live on the mountaintop. I'm in the dark valley in my life. And I'm trying to be optimistic and think, what might the Spirit of God do? What wonderful, strange, mysterious, and unguessable ways might He work in my life and in my city? Maybe... He will use one of us to help draw someone to faith in Jesus as we share the gospel with them. Who is this mysterious God that we serve that can do things like this? What kind of God are we dealing with here, Grace? We're dealing with the kind of God who welcomes sinners, the kind of God who welcomes enemies to his table to eat with him to sit right next to him. Who invites their enemies to their, to their dinner tables? It's like, let's have a meal together. We're dealing with the Romans 5 kind of God, which says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Wow. We serve the God who pursues his enemies and loves them, forgives them, justifies them, adopts them into his family. We serve the God who sent his one and only son to pay the penalty that we could never do on the cross to live the life that we could never live. And God raised him from the dead. He ascended to God's right hand. He's coming again to judge the world. 
We serve the God who loves sinners. We serve the God who says this to his enemies. Get this. He says, come, you pole dancers and Sunday school teachers and crazy old cat ladies, come to the feast. Come, you snotty-nosed brats and dirty old men and abortionists, come to the feast. Come, you Bible-thumping Baptists and smells and bells Anglicans and holier-than-thou Lutherans, come to the feast. Come, you virgins and porn stars, you pious and predators, you straight as an arrow and you LGBTQs, come to the feast. It is finished. The lamb has been slain. His blood has painted the wicked world white. His table is laden with life. And there's a place setting with your name written on it. Come to the feast. Have you slept with more people than you can remember? Come to the feast and be welcomed as a pure virgin in Jesus, the righteous one. Have you murdered and stolen and raped and devastated life after life along the way? Come to the feast and be welcomed as a saint by the Holy One of God. Have you vomited up more meals than you've digested? Cut yourself just to feel something real? Starved yourself to skin and bones just to feel unfat? Come to the feast and be welcomed as drop-dead gorgeous by the one who is incarnate love. Have you faithfully prayed, fasted, done devotions, served in soup kitchens, tithed from your gross income, and memorized 1,000 Bible verses? There's room at the table for you too. Come to the feast and be welcomed by him who takes away your filthy righteousness and clothes you with his own. Come to the tomb of Jesus and laugh at the ugly, deformed, twisted face of death. Come to the throne of Jesus. Let the Father hug you and kiss you and wipe your tears away. Come to the feast where evil and good, wise and foolish, shameful and shaming are welcomed as citizens of the kingdom. Let no one say, I am unworthy, for Christ makes you worthy. Let no one say, I have sinned too much for your sin is no longer your own. Let no one say, I don't believe enough, for Christ has trusted perfectly in your stead. Let no one say, I have blasphemed, for Jesus has exchanged your curse for a blessing. Everything is ready. Let no one be left hungry. Gather all and bring them in. Go to the highways and byways, bars and alleys, nursing homes and hospitals, seminaries and sex shops, and bring them to the feast. Let no one be left behind. The world, the whole jacked up, navel-gazing, sin-loving, evil-addicted world has been set right by the God who died and rose again. All are forgiven, all are covered, all are welcome. Come one and all, come to the feast. Will you come to the feast today to find forgiveness? You're welcome. He has a table setting with your name on it and he will tell you that you are clean, you are forgiven, and you are loved. Come. Let's pray. Jesus, who is a God like you, forgiving, 
iniquity and sin. What kind of God are we dealing with here? Jesus, you're a God that we wouldn't create. White God loves sinners so much that he lays his life down for them, for their sin. Who does that? Only you. So Jesus, we ask you to come now. Holy Spirit, regenerate. Make people alive this morning so they can place their faith in you, so they can turn from their sins. Make them alive. Bring them into your kingdom this morning. For those of us who are already your adopted children, but we've done a bunch of the things that I just read, gross things, things that we're ashamed of, by your Holy Spirit, would you remind us that we are forgiven? Like you said in the Gospels, John, Jesus, you said that you are clean. I've already made you clean. Would you remind us that we're clean this morning? And then would you help us take this good news of you, Jesus, to our city? We ask you to give us opportunities to talk about you with people this week. They may not come to faith this week, but give us one person this week that we can tell them about you and who you are. And we pray for the Central Coast. Jesus, from Santa Barbara all the way up to San Luis, Lord. Bless those Bible-believing, Christ-honoring churches. Bless your people here, the people of God. Give Christians on the Central Coast opportunities to share Jesus this week. And, And may we one day not be on either of those lists anymore. May we be a place where the gospel spreads and transforms and changes lives. So do it, we ask, for your kingdom, for your glory, in your name, amen.